Kia ora, everyone. Now my haramai, and welcome to podcast number 21 on Takupu with me, your host, Christopher Von Roy. Thanks for joining us today on the 30th of March 2022 for our second deep dive with Ted Howard, um, the amazing guest we had on last week. So we continue our discussion and move on towards um, everything from the future of humanity to um, political systems, laws of thermodynamics, Ted's career as a politician going up against Winston Peters and Tauranga by-election. And yeah, we talk about much, much more. Um, yeah, for those of you who have any questions, please leave them in the comments below. And if you want to write to Ted directly, look in the show notes and you'll find um, his email address and his blog that you should, I urge you guys all to read. So I'll leave this intro with a quote from Ted's dad. <clears throat> the only person who never made mistakes, never made anything. Kia ora, everyone. Enjoy the show. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good? Nice one. Um, so, Ted, I was um, listening to a podcast, an interview with Margaret Atwood, you know, the Canadian sci-fi writer, yeah. um, Ezra Klein. And Ezra asked Margaret the question of why science fiction writers always tend to write about dystopian futures as opposed to utopian and Margaret said that it just comes easier and is more practical and yeah, seemingly more realistic. Um, and in terms of the, what we talked life extension and humans being able to live longer than they were initially um, built for, that we needed certain political changes to take place in order to cater to such a population. And I was wondering, in your view, like there's certain vanguards that we need to put into place, like there's certain human psychological tendencies like tribalism and racism and things of that nature that we need to kind of curb in order to build a kind of political future that will, yeah, cater for this sort of next advancement in our biology. And I wanted to, yeah, ask you, a, what you thought about Margaret Atwood saying that, that dystopians just come easier to writers. And B, what are some of the steps that should be happening now in order to, you know, such a political system that caters for a longer living human species? There's a whole bunch of things in there. <laughs> I know. Um, where to start? Um, well, I guess I would argue with Margaret in, in some respects. Like, yes, yeah, certainly it's it's easy to write science fiction uh, that's dystopian. But one of my all-time favorite authors was Isaac Asimov in his Foundation series, which was pretty much a utopian future. Um, you know, uh, there are always... 
when you're developing complex systems, you're always fighting thermodynamics. Like there's always a tendency for things to break down. Yeah. So, so you have to create sets of boundary conditions that protect against that um, and promote the the evolution of the the system you're working on. Um, so when you can, yeah, like in my head, I view evolution as sets of systems moving through the spaces of possible systems and possible strategies. And yeah. it's seeing what sorts of systems and strategies are compatible with long-term survival. So that sort of leads us into the other aspect of the question you asked, which was around sort of human nature and the various sorts of natures that we have. And like I would say that humans are the most cooperative species on the planet, but we have stacks of subconscious systems present. And the sorts of uh, responses, the sorts of phenotypes we express in our behavior uh, is very much a function of the context that we find ourselves in. Like if we yeah. find ourselves in a context where we feel safe, where all our needs are met, we can be really cooperative and we can sustain huge diversity. Like we can be happy with people, nothing like us at all. But the more stressed we become, the, the less our needs are met, the more we feel under threat for any, you know, in any dimension of threat. Yeah. Um, cultural, social, physical. Um, the more we tend to regress into our smaller groups, we'll come down to tribe and then we'll come down to family and then we'll come down to just looking after us uh, if we absolutely get pushed to that limit. So, yeah, it's... It's very much about the sorts of context that we create. And that's where I have this <clears throat> profound problem with money and finance, with, the, with the, the very concept of money and with the, the financial systems that we have now. Um, like for most of our evolution, or for the last few thousand years anyway, um, money's undoubtedly been a very, very useful tool um, because when you go to a market, you're dealing with things that are scarce and what you're doing is shifting things that you have a relative abundance of to someone who has a, a higher scarcity of those things and vice versa. Uh, so people bring to the, to the market things they have an abundance of and other people go there to get things that they need. And that system and money is just a lubricant in that. Uh, it allows transactions so you don't have to find someone that wants what you've got that has what you want. You can use the intermediate thing. And that worked really well. But now that we've got really, excuse me, <coughs> really advanced automation coming on stream, 
Yeah. Um, we, we've now got the ability to automate processes to the level that there need not be anybody involved at all. And once you do that, then that good or service becomes like oxygen in the air, which is arguably the most important thing to any one of us. But because it's universally abundant, it has zero value in the market. Yeah. So, <coughs> so there can never be an internal market incentive to make anything universally abundant. There's always going to be an incentive at some level for someone to put in place barriers that make the thing sufficiently scarce that a profit can be generated. Yeah. And arguably that is all of our intellectual property laws, most of our health and safety laws. And if you dig deep enough, I would say over 80% of any law that's been passed in any jurisdiction in the last 25, 30 years. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, our systems of money and finance and markets have become the greatest threat to our peaceful future. Yeah. Yeah. So getting more people to, to start to even consider that is maybe something that could possibly be the case. Um, yeah, it's been a long, slow road. So it's about 30 yeah. years or so that I've been talking about that. And for about the first 10 years, most people would look at me, eh, that kid's more than a little bit lost it. Um, <laughs> But um, now more and more people are starting to say, yeah, you might be onto something. So the conversation has changed. And like last year, I actually got to talk to the head of the Club of Rome and the head of the Soros Institute um, through a couple of weird events. But um, yeah, even those guys are saying, yeah, we've got to do something, but they're not quite on the same page I'm on yet, but they are at least thinking about the problem. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And in terms of pragmatic solutions in the interim, like what do you think could well, be within the scope of what we have now? Like a universal think, basic income? Yeah, a universal, some sort of universal income, probably sold as some sort of universal dividend on the sum of human knowledge. Um, yeah. Like if you think about it that way, like we're all, anyone who does anything significant these days is standing on the shoulders of giants. No. Nobody does anything from first principles themselves. We're all using tools and stuff that you know, vast numbers of thinkers and workers have produced for us. Um, that who aren't alive anymore. Who, yeah. Yeah, who, aren't, who aren't there anymore. But they allow yeah. us to do this stuff we're doing now. So there's definitely an aspect of that common dividend from the, the you know, the vast efforts of humanity generally that that needs to be it needs to form a high basis on which anyone can then do more like i don't want to impose any upper limits other than the thermodynamic limits that the planet can sustain um yeah. I, I don't think the concept of equality does nothing for me at all I'm, we're all different and we need yeah. to accept and acknowledge and celebrate those differences but um yeah 
So long yeah, as everyone it. has sufficient and everyone has what they consider to be sufficient, I think that's all the equality we ever need. Yeah. Kurt Vonnegut wrote this amazing short story about, it's called something Bergeron, and it's about this guy, this future where everybody's equal and there's a police that polices equality. And so it like, it goes, it goes into the extreme, but where they like, maim people who are really good at sports so that they can't be better than other people and take money away from some people and make people ugly yeah. so that everyone yeah so it's like once you understand the handicap that that's, general yeah, yeah exactly mm. it's, that's not really feasible um yeah you're right equality actually is not the thing that we should be looking at no, it's absolutely not. Nobody wants to be equal with anyone else because it's no. boring and useless. We all want to celebrate our differences, accept our differences, and get on with being yeah. whatever we responsibly choose. Yeah. And I think like when we go back to the conversation we had last week and speaking of um, getting rid of these market based incentives and the scarcity of intellectual property as well and the proprietary nature of it like these are things like you said last week genius like if every human being in let's say new zealand were given an allocated amount of vitamin c to take a day the amount of burden that would be taken off the healthcare infrastructure moving forward would be significant and that type of incentive in our current system is not feasible because vitamin C is ubiquitous and yeah, it's left up to the individual consumer to make that decision. But I mean, yeah. we make so decisions for people speaking of vaccines and children and all that, where we deem that this will help in the future. But the reason for that is that these vaccines tend to still have a, some type of proprietary nature. It's at least the newest ones coming out. Um, yeah. So like, these things can't be, um, they can't be pushed to the forefront because we've got this system that wouldn't allow that, really. unless it's charity, of course, like what Bill Gates is doing, fighting malaria and stuff like that. But this is, yeah, like you say, it's an even bigger problem that leads to so many other deleterious outcomes like mental health issues and yeah, struggling to get by, um, yeah, I think, do you reckon there'll be a time in the future where we look back at this time and we're just like, oh my God, they were just, it was savages back then. You had to work to eat. Uh, um, like these are like concepts that probably in the future people will look at and say, yeah, we were still fairly low on our evolutionary development as a species. They probably won't even be able to imagine what it was like, hopefully. Hopefully we get there, and hopefully it's not that far away. Yeah, um, yeah. Like it's, I can. Well, one of my strong memories is sitting on a hillside in um, in Merrimary. Uh, this was during the the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, and I was sitting there with some of like Dad was a veteran of World War Two. And he was active in the RSA, Returned Servicemen's Association. And he had some some of his older friends who were veterans of both World War One and World War Two. And there was this big fire, like Murray was a coal-fired power station in the Waikato. And there was yeah. this big fire that had started up. They 
there's an open cast mine at Kopoka, just across the swamp, about 12 miles away. And there had been a shaft, like just a, a standard coal mine where they'd put a shaft down into the seam. But there'd been a fire there, so they'd sealed that up to put the fire out. This was well, decades before. But the fire had never actually gone out. And then the, the open wow. cast cut into that shaft, and then the next thing, the whole open cast face is on fire. And so here we were, sitting on this hillside. The Cuban Missile Crisis was happening, and here's this glow 12 miles away from this 800-metre diameter coal pit on fire, black clouds rising in the air. And here's my child brain going, yeah, that's not really not going to be good for humanity if anyone's mad enough to start this nuclear conflagration. It's going to make this coal pit look like nothing, and this coal pit is really something. Yeah. yeah. Man. So, yeah, that's sort of 60, it's almost exactly 60 years ago. But, yeah, that... Um, it's a very formative thought that um, got my brain going in the direction that it's been chasing yeah. ever since. Yeah. We and have to see, avoid that. Yeah. Well, we're not in a very good position right now. Yeah, like sometimes it takes something really visceral like that to... Yeah, I was going to say, it's a vision, that visual thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to feel the heat on your body and smell the sulfur and... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, also amazing uh, allegory, almost the fact that they had boarded it all up, thinking it would go out. Yeah, um, it's like in terms of now the politics that we're witnessing is all stuff that we've kind of done the same with. If you yeah. think about it, starting back in the '60s with the, you know, what was going on in Cuba, to then you know Ukraine handing its weapon, nuclear weapons over to the to Russia and well it started back going, oh, it's going to be okay yeah true it started <laughs> in the 30s with John von Neumann and mutually yeah. assured destruction like yeah like structuring politics on games theory that is about you know zero sum games it, it yeah it's not survivable yeah, we no. are the most inventive species possible. We can invent our way into eternally expanding abundance. I have no doubt of that. Um, yeah. But the what's the biggest block to that at present is the money system. Um, yeah. But and and the, just the ways of thinking that it engenders in minds like. People tend to value things that are scarce and, and undervalue the things that are abundant. Um, and we, yeah. we've got to reverse that. We've got to invert it. We've got to get people to recognize that, yeah, oxygen really is one of the most valuable things on the planet. And one yeah. of the crazy things that we've, we've got to realize, well, I think more people are going to realize real soon that burning coal is just about as insane a thing as we can get. Coal is going to be one of the most valuable resources when we really start building large-scale habitats. Like, yeah, we're going to, launching mass from the Earth is always going to be difficult. Like, even if Elon gets everything right, and I think he probably will, it's still going to cost ten dollars a kilo to launch somebody or something into orbit from 
from the Earth's surface. Uh, yeah. Just because we've got a deep gravity well and there's a lot of atmosphere and you've got to go really slowly at the start, so you you can't accelerate things on the ground. Um, but on the moon, there's no atmosphere. Um, no. You can build long right linear accelerators, um, mass drivers, and you can accelerate stuff to escape velocity on the moon with ground-based um, technology, totally reusable. So your cost to orbit from the moon is a few cents per kilogram. Um, so, but the moon moon has lots of metals, uh, vast amounts yeah. of mass. So we can build big habitats um, based on moon mass, but there's not much hydrogen and not much carbon. And no. what's the best source we have of solid hydrogen and carbon? Coal. <laughs> When it comes to building habitats, we're going to all that coal is going to be so valuable for building very large habitats and making vast ecosystems in space possible. Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, burning coal was that's just going to be seen as one of the most insane things humanity has done. Yeah, it's also so labor intensive to get out compared to oil thinking about it you need more manpower to get it out of the ground and ship it and where it's oil flows yeah yeah they're, they're, they're quite different technologies though like oil is well it's it's kind of biological well oil is a combination of biology and earth heat technology so you've got to yeah. have a biological origin for the carbon and then it gets taken down by tectonic activity and transformed at great depth and great pressure. And then it comes back up to the surface again. So it's energy from the sun initially captured and then transformed by energy from the earth into a liquid hydrocarbon, which then percolates up to the surface and gets captured under an impervious layer. So all they've got to do in Saudi Arabia is put pressure reducing valves on it to slow it down to a pressure that the they can handle they don't even pump the stuff it just squirts out of the ground under huge pressure but there's a limit to that and so we, we've it's all well it's mostly all the coal definitely is all fossilized carbon because coal's a different source it's um, all the good coal is uh, lignite coal so there was a time when when trees first developed lignin, so there's well probably around eighty or ninety million years uh, when trees were busy producing lignin, and none of the bacteria or um, fungi had worked out how to break it down, and that led to all these lignite, all these lignin deposits, because it just built up on the forest floors and in the swamps, and it couldn't be broken down. So that's what made these vast coal seams all around the planet. Um, but then some enterprising bacteria figured out how to break it down, and then the fungi soon nicked it off them. And so, yeah, um, yeah we reached a new equilibrium. So we went back to swamps and lower-grade coals from swamps. But, yeah, that's all quite, you know, just fossilised sunlight in a sense. Yeah, sun from the energy captured, but see, plants only capture sunlight at about three percent efficiency um, in terms of converting sunlight into a usable hydrocarbon as an energy source. Yeah, um, and we can already get 
well, depends how you measure it. Uh, we can run about 22% efficiency on the actual capture, but if you include all the cost of manufacturing and everything, we're still running probably at around 10 or 11%. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're already, with our silicon technology, running about three times as, as good as plants are in converting solar energy into electricity for our use. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, we can... Like when you actually do the sums on the amount of energy that's coming out of the sun, it's vast. There's 600 million tons of hydrogen to helium converted every second in the sun. Um, and it's going to continue doing that for another four or five billion years. Um, yeah, it's a pretty stable, pretty benign, like it's a good safe distance to have a nuclear reactor 93 million miles. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a really good energy source, and like even if we want to use a lot more energy here on Earth, then really the the safest way to do it is to use mass from the Moon, move it back into Earth orbit, big you build your big solar collectors and up in geostationary orbit, and then have all your inefficiency way up there and convert it to electricity, and then bring it down. Yeah, it's, you know, and high efficiency microwave rectangular systems. And if you did that, even if you were just running at one kilowatt per square meter, you could meet like all of Germany's energy needs from a seven kilometer square. Wow. It's, um, it's yeah. simple, really. <laughs> and what about so China? recently released information about this artificial sun that they had created in a lab. Did you read about that? Is that a, would that be a viable energy source, recreating what's going on? Well, Fusion know? has been... Yeah. I even poured a little bit of money into Fusion myself when I had yeah. a little bit of money to play with. Um, so I still get, get the updates from that particular uh, Fusion um, test that's still going on, um, but it's incredibly difficult yeah. to maintain the pressures and temperatures. And like, if your plasma touches any part of your retaining vessel, and it, then it will instantly vaporize uh, that material. And then, like, you have to maintain the purity of the hydrogen to such a high level that the slightest level of impurity, like any amount of the, the containing metals or the containing substances being vaporized and yeah. your fusion reactions instantly gone. Um, yeah. So it's a nice idea, um, but like, why would you? It's so easy to make solar cells. There's yeah. so much solar energy there. Isn't it just so much easier to do that? So to get back to what you were saying, this is building solar panels in near orbit. Is that what you were talking about? And then yeah. bringing, yeah. And you said the, like the surface area of how much four kilometers could power Germany's energy needs? Germany's current total energy needs, like if, you bought, if you bought microwave energy down at one 
kilowatt per square meter. So that's the same energy density as ordinary sunlight. So yeah. if you were, you could fly through it, you probably would avoid flying through it. You have it as a no-fly zone, but you could fly through it, and all you would do is warm up a little bit. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it, it would be really, really safe, and um, you could get conversion efficiencies then, like in the high nineties, because um, we we know how to do microwave conversion really, really efficiently, um, much, much more efficiently efficiently than working with the, the lower spectrums. Um, so, yeah, like that sort of technology we know how to do right now. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's easy. It's easy. So I was just to hark back to the original, like Elon Musk planning this, whatever, creating an, a livable possibly terraformed Mars for thousands first and then millions of human beings. It seems a little bit strange to be planning that now when we haven't, you know, like what type of a political system would exist on Mars, you know? And that's why, why don't we create that here first viably and then look to the stars? Do you know what I mean? It's almost like we're running before we can crawl in that yeah. sense. And that's possibly driven by yeah curiosity and ego a little bit as well. Uh, Elon is such a complex character. I wouldn't like to try and judge everything about him. Like there's so much about of what Elon does that I really applaud. Like he's done, yeah. he's done vast amounts of great things, and he continues to do great things. I think his fixation with Mars is inappropriate, and he he seems to be moderating on that uh he yeah. said the last time i heard him speak was about three weeks ago and he was saying yeah we probably need to do a, a lunar uh setup first so yeah. yeah i think like to me it's like we need to put we need to secure the earth and to do that we need yeah large amounts of mass in orbit and so, and then we need to be able to move large amounts of mass into higher orbits, and like I mean, like out beyond the orbit of Mars. Um, and then, once we have really good intelligence of what rocks are floating around the uh, the solar system, and once we have the ability to intercept them and change their direction, um, then the Earth is secure. Uh, yeah. So then we can start building really big habitats. Like the solar system is capable of sustaining quite large populations. Like, huh. yeah, would be a million times the Earth's current population relatively easily. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a large number. It's a it's a large number. Um, but yeah, even, even we don't want, can, yeah. Like we don't, we want to start taking, we're going to have to start the process with mass from the moon because that's our only close source of mass that's yeah. easily available. But we don't want to take too much mass off the moon. Otherwise we'll start really noticing that we don't have tides anymore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So 
we are going to need to take a fair amount of mass off the moon, but the, the moon's in a tidal lock with the Earth, so the same face always faces the Earth. So we could take a lot of mass yeah. off the far side of the moon and no one on the Earth would really notice. They'd notice that the tides aren't quite as high as what they were, but there'd still be significant tides. So we could probably take 15% of the moon's mass off the far side of the moon and no one would really notice a great deal of difference. <laughs> would really... But you would still notice something. Yeah, yeah. The tides wouldn't be quite as big, but the tides are so variable anyway. Most people would ne would never notice. No, unless it gets bigger. Unless they would get bigger. Yeah. No, no they're going to get smaller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so then the next closest source of mass is Mars. So when it's not going to be that long, you know, a few hundred years, and we're going to want to tear Mars apart to its component atoms and use it to build habitats too. Um, yeah. So building a civilization on Mars is just buying trouble. We avoid it. It's just going to be the next source of mass. We're going to need it to build habitats for humanity. Yeah. In about and three to five hundred years' time. Yeah. Three to five. Um, yeah, and even in terms of people underestimate the amount, the human population that Earth could even sustain i read somewhere that the entire human population can fit into the state of texas at a population density of paris and yep. and that's a, an eye-opener right there when you think oh wow so that's how massive our planet actually is and how tiny and relatively insignificant we are in size or biomass well compared to... it depends how you look at it um yes if we if we all went on to vegan diets, we could yeah. put the Earth's population within the state of California if we had the roofs of all of the buildings um, being multi-level gardens. Yeah. And if we used our best gardening technology, you know. So, but if we want to have open spaces and we want to grow animals and we want to harvest fish, then actually we are we're already commanding a fair chunk of the biology that exists on the planet. But we're doing yeah. so very wastefully. But yeah. lots of people like having their wasteful cultures and wasteful ways of doing things. So that's going to take time to change. We're not going to get everyone... I don't think they necessarily like it, do they? <laughs> I think it's just that it's, it's not frowned upon. And I think that's, you know, the outrage isn't there. I mean, I suppose in certain green circles and stuff you know looking at someone who doesn't recycle you know there'll be a certain amount of i don't know social you know yeah. anger well, but yeah at the moment well, we're just we're still outraged at the wrong things basically Maybe, yeah there's there's say. some of that um but i've like i've lived in small country towns most of my life and most farmers actually like farming it's what yeah. they've grown up with. It's what they know. It's what they like. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people that like doing what they're doing. And given the option, we continue pretty much doing it. Don't want to automate the aspects they don't like, but other than that, they're quite happy doing what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I don't see that being a, a huge overnight change of everything. I see it more being a gradual process of 
people who don't have nothing at the moment or have very little suddenly find they have enough. Um, the people who are doing things they really don't want to do, well, they don't do them anymore and they start looking around for things that they do actually like doing and they start doing that. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So it's going to take a while. But, yeah, we're capable of supporting... Well, I like I really like open space, and yeah, Elsa, Elsa and I spend quite a bit of time in the back country in our four wheel drive, and then we just go there, and then we can walk. I've done a five day walk where I didn't see anyone other than the people in the party I was walking with. I love that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean we're relatively lucky here in New Zealand, um, but in terms of let's say you say it's happening, going to happen gradually, and but like. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Art isn't artificial intelligence, and yeah, automation is going to be speeding that stuff up. You know, I mean, it, far, like you far said, than most people can imagine possible. Exactly. Imagine. So, I mean, the change that's already happened in the last ten years, people can't even fathom. And I, in a positive sense as well, like we don't use plastic bags anymore. You know, whenever I see footage from America and there's people walking out of supermarkets with plastic bags or even like disposable cups with plastic lids or entirely plastic beverage holders. I was, there's something in my mind that goes, Oh my God, we used to be exactly like that. Like two, yep. three, four years ago. And now there's something like you're talking about visceral change. I've had that to the, the, in the opposite direction, you know, now we're going like where if you don't need, plastic bags it works so easily with cotton based any type of bag that you have at home that you just take to the supermarket right and bring it back home again yeah. and it's these things that we we thought were yeah i guess it took legislation to phase that out and in that sense you could use that for so many other things that we yeah. need to put into place and but food and money i just think are those things that you know, the minute you start messing with a carnivore or self-proclaimed carnivore's diet, they'll, yeah, they'll get angry. And same with money. You know, when people start talking about universal basic income, people very quickly jump to the fact that people are poor because they're lazy and not because, you know, they've had unfavorable conditions in their life or misfortune. And I guess I think people who have a lot of money and wealth often forget how lucky they were to get to where they were. And they often feel this entitlement to that wealth, which I think is that something that our species needs to really come to terms with and point out that, like you said, we've been favoring this zero sum game for so long that we've forgotten, yeah, the nature of, of our species. Like if we, if we weren't cooperative, we never would have made it to this point, right? It's Correct. The, yeah, and we didn't need money to do that, to survive even harsher conditions. And that's why it's just bizarre now that we're such, a, we're such an evolved species and the way we use language and we communicate and we listen to our stories and we follow these stories that we don't realize that some of the stories are a bit off, like you say, with the money thing and being okay with um, people having a lot, like more than they ever need and people having nothing. Like that's just something we just, and no politician comes out against that. And I've always thought like New Zealand is the well, perfect, yeah, go on. Not no politician. No. Yeah, 
the ones of of who sway, who could actually, you know, I mean, I know the Soros Foundation are all in favor of UBI, a, a presidential candidate I backed what, years ago. Also, that was his platform that he yep. ran on. Andrew's um, a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I was. I did phone banking for him, and from New Zealand, and I would talk to people in America. They'd be like, "What? You're not even in America?" I'm like, "No." I'm like, "That's how much this guy means to me." I was like, "If it gets established in the U.S., it's going to echo in the rest of the world," and that's why. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it's a it's a thing that we should be talking about, but we just look at it from a point of view where, you know, Jacinda Ardern kind of tackled childhood poverty, which was great shining a spotlight on that but why is there childhood poverty is the question not how we tackle it but why does that even exist why are their families struggling to feed their children in a country that is super luxurious like new zealand like we are the you know in that sense we rank higher than anyone else in terms of space to population ratio and abundance of food like how much food do we export you know that's um, yeah, so I guess why is it not something that everyone is discussing and should be that should be at the forefront and the people should be demanding it. But it's like this whole thing where money is, it's one of those taboo topics, which it really shouldn't be. And the irony that we develop money in order to make it more convenient for us to shop at marketplaces and that now it's become such a bane is and it's turned into a game you know it's turned into a you know you can go on the stock market and if you're lucky you'll make a lot of money um i recently saw this guy he's a billionaire he's got 22 billion the way he made his 22 billion was he bet on bitcoin the differences in prices of bitcoin from japan to the us and you realize that there was a substantial difference in bitcoin prices and he just traded bitcoin for five six years and made like a million dollars a day doing that exchange. I mean, that's a game that has got nothing to do with benefiting humanity, helping people to this person's favor. He's now giving all his money to charity. He's an MIT graduate. He's a pretty incredible guy. And he said he always wanted to make a lot of money so he could help, right? Yeah. And I think like that's something that gives me hope. And kind of also the next generation, I think they're a lot wiser to these things than we necessarily were back i mean not maybe not you because you're a voracious reader but like these are things that are now i guess in common parlance people are talking about but not the people in power and that's the thing like because they i guess enjoy the power structure as it exists now is that the biggest problem ted that people are benefiting from it and that's why they're not going to do anything to change it well it's it's deeply more complex than that that's in some cases, that will be a part of the picture. Um, but like many of these structures were set up quite intentionally to make them slow to change so that they would be stabilizing forces in yeah. times of rapid change. Um, so there's good... There's very good systemic reasons for conservatism. Um, 
yeah. we, all, we all have our conservative aspects as well as our liberal aspects. And we need both. Uh, and we need some degree of conservative structure uh, to maintain the structure that's absolutely essential for us all to survive. Um, but I would say that the most important aspect of that is becoming conscious that every level of freedom demands a level of responsibility and that the more freedom one claims, the more responsibility one needs to work on um, yeah. when expressing it. And that notion is not yet common, but it's reasonably common in New Zealand. Yeah. But uh, in the States, they've gone down the line where they've divorced freedom from responsibility. Um, and they just focus on, they tend to focus on rights without yeah. link, necessarily linking responsibility to the right. And I think that is the most catastrophic failure of the American system, the American experiment. Yeah. Fre yeah. Freedom for freedom's sake, not for... Yeah. gaining responsibility through it but so like a, a fundamental well i guess it would be a pretty drastic change to monetary policy to instigate a, a universal basic as income as in globally i think that yuval noah harari you know the israeli historian he talks about it but he's always like universal basic income will never be universal you know if they even if they try it in the u.s or finland or uruguay he said the real universal basic income would be if we stratify the world into the most influential and wealthy. And then you see like San Francisco paying for a universal basic income in Bangladesh and New York City paying for it in, you know, somewhere Andorra or something. You know, that's that's the way he said you could create it. But if it's just one country implementing it. So that's why I was going to say, like, New Zealand is this perfect testing ground for something like that, like relatively homogenous population, quite stable. Um, and just to see how it would go on a countrywide level, um, because the money is there, isn't it? Ted? Like you said, money is just an agreement. And if the whole world agreed, yeah, this is how we're going to structure it now. Everyone gets a, a dividend or an allowance. Um, money... Now, this is the hard thing for most people to get. Money is pure myth. Yeah. It's a very, very useful myth, but it is pure myth. Like, yeah. You can have as many numbers as you like in your bank account, but if you're on a tropical, if you're on a desert island and you've got no food, they're going to be of no use to you at all. What actually yeah. matters in reality is the goods and services that are available to you and the freedoms in terms of movement and places you can move to and things and people you can see and do. Like Those are the things that are important. Now, currently, access to most things is mediated through having sufficient numbers. Um, but the idea that a lack of numbers should mean that services that are there don't get employed or goods that are there go to waste, 
they get ploughed back into the ground as fertiliser rather than going to yeah. someone who's starving. Is like It's a failure of systems. It's a failure of the number generating and number moving system. Uh, so, And the myth. Well, the, the myth. Yes. Well, insofar that currently most people equate dollars to resources no like less than no no i think i think currently less than six percent of the money in existence goes to anything to do with physical goods or services most of it is uh people playing in the money system to generate more money um so 94 percent of the, the money does nothing but play with itself uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a word for that too, but I won't mention it on this podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> you can mention it. Is it is it uncouth? Yeah, it, I thought you were going to say greed. No, uh, no, I was thinking more of masturbation. Yeah, so I have mentioned it. There we go, monetary yeah. masturbation. Yeah, yeah, amazing. That's very true. So if we would, yeah, so the number, it's like what was that analogy? I think Andrew might have said it was. You don't ever try to build a house and the builder comes to you and goes, oh, we've run out of inches or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So it is literally just, yeah, it's a numbers game. And I guess, like you said, the conservative part of it is that it's all being monitored and all of these gaming, betting, stock markets are all, you know, they all work, as in they're all being calculated and they're not... Um, subject to that much cheating and fraud besides insider trading and stuff like that but like if you look at the power of money like even bitcoin which is trying to separate itself as it's this new sort of vanguard of human interaction in terms of wealth even bitcoin gets measured against dollars you know so it's yeah. kind of at the moment these guys that are thinking that they're kind of going to recreate the entire financial system you know the people that are involved in it are not involved in it because they believe in the satoshi original idea that it was going to become a, a you know free from central banks and controlled oh. by the people it's still subject to that because the people are doing it because they want to make money not make fiat currency not they don't buy into the bitcoin's going to replace the dollar anytime soon well to me bitcoin is just it's a nonsense uh it's more of that masturbation, actually. Well, no, it's 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 deeply more nonsensical than that. Um, like, okay, one aspect of any currency is that it needs to be hard to counterfeit. And yeah. So that's why most most cultures have used gold. Like, gold is actually a relatively scarce metal. You can't manufacture it. You, no. You can if you get lucky and you go and dig up a big pile of it. Well, good for you. You've somehow got wealthy, uh, whatever that means. Um, but like mostly, the amount of gold that's in circulation is relatively stable, and so people can move gold around, and it it acts as this intermediary of value, and it's hard, yeah. because of that hard to to falsify aspect. So the thing about Bitcoin, about the blockchain made it hard to falsify was this idea of proof of work so part of what you have to do 
in order to create Bitcoin is you have to find these very large prime numbers. And that's really, really computationally difficult. So um, I think the number I saw, I haven't verified these numbers, but I think it was something like one new power station a week was going purely to Bitcoin mining. Unbelievable. Yeah. Staggering. Um, it's the idea that we would have this vast amount of computational resource going just to find prime numbers, just so that you could prove that you'd done some work so that with that proof, you could then vote to be the next person and the, the next entity in the blockchain. Um, okay, it keeps the thing scarce, but uh, there's just no way to scale it. Like Bitcoin only works to the degree that it does because there are so few transactions. If you yeah. tried to do the number of transactions that people do at the moment, like buying an ice cream or paying yeah. for your groceries, um, there's not enough computational capacity on the planet to do that on any blockchain currently. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. So um, it, it's I, just, it's a nonsensical idea from, from that aspect. Um, and okay, computation's getting cheaper and it will get a lot cheaper. But that... From when, an ideological standpoint, though, it can be understood. You can rationalize it. Moving away from central banks and trying to re... Yeah, but why... If you're going to go down... Like, if you've got enough brain power to be able to go down that road, why can't you go down far enough to see that that whole strategic approach is doomed? That the only approach that actually has any long-term chance of survival is one that's fundamentally cooperative. As soon yeah. as you go down that competitive route, a fun, any fundamentally competitive system is necessarily going to reduce the complexity of the structures present. It has to. Yeah. And so you, you put at risk both your security and your freedom by going for competition. If you want to maximize freedom and maximize security, you have to have fundamentally cooperative context. So if you've got a fundamentally cooperative context, like think of the game of golf. Uh, yeah. Like one of the rules of golf is thou shalt not hit a competitor with your golf clubs. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. anyone yeah. who does that will never play golf again on any golf course anywhere on the planet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, golf has a fundamentally cooperative base. And on that, we can have some really interesting games. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of complete, I love playing golf. Um, I, I love competing and all sorts of things, but. But do those rules ever get, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That you've never experienced that rule being broken, the club being hit to another competitor. No one's ever tried to pull it on me. No. Um, no. So you could argue that our world has certain ethics in that regard, like the International Criminal Court, the United Nations, but they seem to be more symbolic. As so long as we everyone care, breaks, yeah. 
so long as we have armies that are prepared to go into somebody else's territory and take anything by force, so long as anybody thinks that is acceptable, um, we are all at risk. Yeah. Uh, so long as anyone thinks that they can play with the political system of, or the, the control systems of any other level of entity and put in place some autocratic dictator that's a puppet to some other structure, um, we have problems. Like th yeah. that should not, no level of ethics should allow that to happen ever. Yeah. That's fundamentally non cooperative. So, so, yeah, this is where I was thinking that there's no one who pops out, like who works at the golf course, to come down and tell off the person for hitting the other guy. Like, we don't have that equivalent on the earth at the moment. You know, every no... single golf player. If a golf if a golfer took a golf club to another player, every yeah. other player on the course would come to the assistance of the one yeah. being attacked. Yeah. We yeah. would just all do it. Yeah. Not and by hitting that, him with a golf club, but no, by we would restrain him. <laughs> de escalate. We, we might yeah. have to hit him on the kneecap with a golf club to yeah. to enable restraining him. Um, but yeah. you know. You uh, you would do what was required, and yeah. every everyone would do that to the best of their limited infallible abilities. I but think uh, yeah. we're not doing that in international relationships. We need no, to but be... your populations are doing that. So if you look at like, you know, I was going to say in terms of the displacement of almost four million Ukrainians now, um, I mean the politi political structure of Europe's trying to do something by imposing sanctions, but the people on the ground in the Poland, Czech Republic, Germany, France, Sweden, like they're driving to the Polish border and picking up Ukrainians, you know, like it's from a, and I guess that harks back to your comment about how cooperative we are as a species. And obviously yeah. it's well-to-do people living in the EU that have the money and the resources to drive to Poland, to give up their house to a family. But in that sense, like these are the people in Maslow's hierarchy that are catered for, and they are stepping up regardless of what the politicians are doing. So it's, in that sense, it's quite heartwarming to see how Europe has reacted to this situation right now. Um, yeah. Heartwarming but, uh, and also, yeah. But yeah, but then the, the flip side of that is, what the hell were the Americans doing playing around in there? What was George Soros doing playing around in there? Destabilizing the systems within the Ukraine and trying to put pressure on Russia through playing around in domestic Ukrainian politics. Yeah. Why the hell were people playing those games at that level, knowing that this was very likely going to be the result? Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lot of insanity going on there. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, like, what would have been the motivation behind that? Is it just to poke the bear or what was the... Was it money? Was it greed? Oh. I was watching 
Feynman the other day. Yeah. And one of his lectures, somebody asked him about magnets, you know, why are, what is it that is this magnetic force? And he's, Feynman sort of ended up going and looking at a whole bunch of different things and eventually coming back to, well, you know, I can't tell you why those magnets, like you're always, the only, there's an infinite number of questions that can be asked. And if you're not familiar with the context, you will just keep on asking questions. Yeah. So I can keep on answering them, but they would keep on going forever. Like there has to be a level at which people accept a set of, a, a set of things as being common and agreed before any question can be answered. Um, yeah. We don't yet have that level of agreement in terms of strategic spaces or understandings of strategy. Uh, yeah. We need to generate a lot more understanding of strategy. Oh, I am not in any sense religious, but I think, well, if we look at philosophy and how that's developed over time, and if we look at how like games theory and theory of moves and then moving into Wolfram's computational universe and the Rouliad. And so you look at the space of all possible strategy spaces. And then I look back and I say, look at, well, what was the, the major message that's in uh, Christianity? And it's basically you know, treat everyone like a brother. Okay, yeah, that's cooperation. Yeah. That's base cooperation. That will support complex systems. Yeah, that's a good idea. Judge not lest you be judged. Okay, don't put your overly simplistic boundaries around something that's more complex than you can yet possibly imagine. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So like, there are some really good concepts embodied and embedded in theology, uh, like in the in the Jewish tradition and in the like in the Jewish tradition of actually wrestling with God. Yeah. That's some really powerful concepts in there. Um, and they're embodied. Um, like it's what there's a very real sense in it's what we do that matters. It's not why we do. Uh, yeah. so the, the why is sometimes really important, but often it's the what that is the most important. And most often it's the what that is most important. So, yeah, I, I'm not in any sense religious. I'm not um, trying to tell anyone to be religious, but um, there's a... And so for, I think Nietzsche got it really, really wrong. Um, when... He talked about um, we had killed morality and that we would all suffer for it. Uh, I think he was just in an intermediate phase where we hadn't yet got to the point where we could see the underlying structures that actually led to the evolution of theology in the first place. 
and as to yeah. how it's settled into the particular structures that, that, it, that it has. Um, yeah, I think he oversimplified that whole master-slave thing. Uh, I think it was wow. always deeply, deeply more complex than that. Well, I was going to say that the detriment of the world as well, because look at what came afterwards. Yeah. And people that were necessarily inspired by certain notions in his writings. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of problems around. Um, but I think most people, given half a chance, are decent. Most yeah. people, given half a chance, are prepared to let people be different, let people make the mistakes, because yeah, one of my dad's favorite sayings, dad had some really good sayings, the only person who never made a mistake never made anything. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to be prepared to clean up the messes that we make and do whatever that takes. And sometimes that's hard work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we. Is that where we're at at our evolution as a species? We're, we're always mistakes. going to be there. Like we're always. Yeah. There's always going to be the boundary of the known. Like what's beyond the boundary of the known. And this is one of the weird things about infinities is what's beyond the boundary of the known is always infinitely larger than what is known. And it doesn't matter how much you know, that's always necessarily the case. Yeah. And like, if that doesn't kind of do your head in, you <laughs> haven't got it yet. No. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of if you break that down, to something more simplistic. Then you like, lose it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you lose it. But in, like, in terms of how to increase cooperation between human beings or how to create systems that facilitate that. Um, then, like China has this social credit score that rewards good behavior. And of course, there's so many pitfalls with that. But it's like... Neil Stevenson's thought about that. Philip K. Dick, a lot of science fiction writers have talked about that. An age yeah. where, you know, computers are so invasive that they can literally see all of our behaviors and give us kind of a, and again, inspired by theology, this whole thing that God is watching us and ticking off a checklist of, yeah, that, done that right, done that right, which is very different in Christianity versus Judaism, like you say, where it's more of an interaction and more of a, like a battle with, you know, the one who cannot be named and like there's no symbolism there either. And, you know, Jewish, the Jewish faith doesn't celebrate anything like the birth of God or anything to do with God. It's more about the people. It's more of a culturally sensitive religion. And it's, yep. yeah. Um, but it, like, like, how do you, yeah, how do we motivate politicians who ultimately have the, you know, power to create, long-lasting change within the political structure how do we get them to see this stuff if they're yeah i mean for me like a thought experiment i've always had is like why when, if you get that person who lives in a cardboard box and you put them you know still has those faculties the intellectual capability of understanding things reading and put them to make decisions how much has that say the luxurious lifestyle of politicians like in america 
there's more millionaires in Congress than not. Um, and I think there's only a handful of people in the Congress actually and the Senate who aren't millionaires themselves making decisions about poor people or, you know, creating the environment for which people who do not have those means have to operate. And we have the same thing in New Zealand, like politicians in New Zealand are not, you know, your average person. They're very well middle class from the pay that they receive for the work that they do. And like, let's say a simple bit would be the housing market. And like, it's in the interest of ministers to see the housing market flourish. And they, cause they have themselves second or third properties, right? So something as simplistic as that is seeing this intrinsic motivation to keep a system going that is benefiting them is how do you make the change happen? Or is it like in the Ukraine that the people step up and do what's right to take in Ukrainian refugees over and above what the powers, you know, how do we get this commons-based future that we so desperately need? Well, there's a few ideas in there that I'd like to untangle. Um, like, there is a sense in which, like, the ship of state is, it's a huge ship. Uh, and if you've had anything to do with like vessels and, and seamanship, you know that the bigger the boat, the slower it is to start and stop, yeah, and the harder it is to turn. So, the idea that you would take somebody who's got no experience of ships or the ocean and put them in charge of the ship of state is kind of insanity um, so what you need is people who are really well skilled you don't want ordinary unskilled people people who have got no interest or aptitude for the sorts of complexity required to do statecraft um, yeah. you just don't want them in the process so there is, like in the American system, the Americans so measure most things by money. So it kind of makes sense in their system to have millionaires in there most of the time, because at least they've demonstrated competency in the financial system at some yeah. level. Um, so there's, there's that aspect. You, you want competency. Um, not not all hierarchies, this is one thing that Jordan Peterson got right, like not all hierarchies are dominance hierarchies. Hierarchies can be competency hierarchies. Jordan's gone seriously off the rails recently, but he's, yeah, he has. He's, uh, he started out making a lot of good sense. He, he had some yeah. very powerful ideas, but yeah. Um, yeah, so, okay. What would be an example of a hierarchy that's not a dominance hierarchy? Food. <clears throat> um, Food chain? It's not really a hierarchy. I suppose that it well, is dominance-based. Formula One drivers. Okay. Like the best Formula One driver, he's, he's not the most dominant. He's, he's going to have to be a an alpha male with a fair ego to get into that game but um, he's also going to have to be competent 
yeah. competent in a way that uh, <laughs> unless you've actually driven a car over you know two or three hundred or over 250 kilometers per hour you've really got no idea what you're dealing with there like yeah and I've driven cars over 250Ks and motorbikes over 250Ks. Scary. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I've gone to the limit of my competence and perhaps a little beyond for a few seconds, um, but enough yeah. to know that I'm never going to be a Formula One driver. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I got Kim Austin. Um, I, I knew since he was about 10 years old and Kim won well, he's probably the best rally driver in terms of physical competency that yeah. New Zealand's ever produced um, but Kim's great power was his greatest weakness at the same time which is always the case um, and that was his incredible reaction time um, like he could drive he wasn't driving consciously. His, his body knew how to drive, and yeah. he was driving you know, fully subconsciously. Um, but that same incredible reaction time meant that once he had had a few beers after the race, and if anyone upset him, they were unconscious before anybody knew <laughs> that it could be yeah. upset. Before Kim knew he was upset, he had just decked the guy. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know. All of these competencies, they all come with um, problems. Any level of competency comes with issues. Um, so finding checks and balances and keeping things functional and safe, it's a deeply, deeply complex suite of issues. Um, so, that Arguably, let's say, in a political system are fairly automated. And this is where I get well, back to the guy in a cardboard box. Is he just has to make the decisions. One of the things about the, yeah. the, one of the things, oh, I'm just trying to remember who it was that said it, but one of the American uh, leaders from the 30s, I think it was, part of yes. in the 20s, said, I don't care who elects um, the candidates, I care who selects them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... I think there is, I think what is required for stability is, well, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but we need to realize that we need cooperative systems, that yeah. we all need to be responsible for the choices we make, particularly in terms of um, representation. I think there's, I've been thinking about ways that you could possibly make this work in which you can give people the right to vote. Like if everybody retains the right to vote on a subject, but they can delegate that right to a person of their choosing. And that, yeah. that can be on delegated and so you end up with a set in numbers and then people have the sort of voting power based upon the number of delegations that they hold. Then that system, if it's got some sort of a blockchain and it, it's secure and it's public without being able to back identify the individuals easily, 
So that's, yeah. you have a certain amount of anonymity, but if you need to know who's there, if you've got a really good reason, you can find out. Um, then that sort of system could be stable, I think. But yeah. there's always going to be an issue that some, well, you know, we've got this bias in our neural networks for simplicity. Uh, you, you tried to break down the idea of infinity. Well, you, nice try, but you can't do that. Um, <laughs> you can't simplify infinity. Infin, infinity sort of, if it, if it doesn't seriously disturb your mental stability, then you haven't got it yet. No, exactly. Um, so, yeah, we've, we all have to, at times, deal with things in the real world within certain time limits. So yeah. there's this huge bias in human neural networks to simplify things so that we can react quickly. And that makes us really like ideas like right and wrong and good and bad because they're nice, simple binary systems. Like all of that myriad infinite complexity is narrowed down to one of two. And we're going to be good and we're going to be bad. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, but in rea reality, it's never that nice and neat and tidy. Our perception no. of it might be because all of our perceptions are guided by these subconscious sets of simplifying systems. So what we consciously perceive reality to be is very little like what reality actually seems to be when you start to deeply and closely look at it. Um, so yeah. Yeah, there's this big gap between perceptions and what might actually be there. I'm not saying I know what's there, but I'm pretty confident that what's there is fundamentally complex and fundamentally uncertain and in some aspects fundamentally unknowable, uh, which kind of does a serious damage to people who like to think of things being nice and orderly and everything having a necessary cause. Um, yeah, sorry, that doesn't appear to be how the universe works. No. But, but it is approximated at some levels to quite high degrees of accuracy. So we can make computers work and you know, we can have planets orbiting stars and being stable. And, but yeah, that's it's an artifact of certain types of complexity. Um, but yeah, that's a topic that we could spend many months on. Yeah, I to say, to. So like in terms of entropy and yeah, the laws of thermodynamics, in that sense, yeah. having conservative... They're very, very simple, system, <laughs> simple ideas. And, uh, you know, quantum mechanics breaks... Uh, the conservation of energy law yeah, by definition <laughs> explain that can you in a simple way well it's it's hard. <laughs> there's nothing by definition, about, you said. yeah there's nothing simple about quantum mechanics no right? exactly but the only way you can make it work is to have this idea that there is this sort of constant mass of virtual particles, particles that can come into existence out of nothing. Yeah, and okay. Providing so that's they created out of nothing, yeah. Providing they don't hang around for too long, they're allowed to do that. Uh, <laughs> and other particles, if they do decide to hang around for a while, then some other particle of equal energy and mass, etc., has to disappear. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> So in that sense, it does fall it does meet the first law of thermodynamics. Well, kind well, because it's nice. happening at the same time. Yeah, well, it, it's within certain limits. 
And yeah. like there are within quantum mechanics um, situations where it doesn't apply. So you can actually get things like the Big Bang, which was everything comes out of nothing. It comes out of a bubble of nothing. Um, nothing is like, something. Well, look, it's this idea that we necessarily simplify things. So we like to have simple ideas and they're really useful to us. And some of them can be really helpful and we need them. But yeah. the underlying reality seems to be complex in ways that you give most people headaches even thinking about them. So yeah, don't, don't know how useful it is going down there, but yeah, it, it appears that the underlying reality doesn't play by the rules that we think it ought to. Yeah. And so when it comes to many things like, um, let's say, instigating a universal basic income or doing anything like creating a socialist structure, moving away from capitalism, people always go like, oh, but it's human nature, you know, Hold on. survival. I, I'm not in favor of a socialist structure where like if you take the a more Ox socialist yeah. hold on. the oxford definition of socialism is ownership of means of production means of production by the community as a whole yeah i'm not in favor of that what i'm in favor of is distribution of the means That's, of production okay so every individual has the distributed means of production to look after their own welfare well, I think loosely that is probably what most socialists would agree with. No, <laughs> so they don't. No, I don't no, think no. that they put they play by the original, you know, or the well, Karl Marx so view. We, we, World's need a, we need a different def definition uh, because the Oxford English Dictionary still has the Karl Marx definition. Yeah, and I'm not I that. Think... Like I, I think Marx was way ahead of his time as an economist. Uh, he had yeah. some brilliant ideas. Um, but he's still got a lot of things seriously wrong. Um, yeah. But yeah, his that whole idea of the majority dominating everyone, no, that can't work. Okay. What has to work is everybody like having the social systems ensuring that everybody has all that they reasonably need and it's going to be a test of reasonableness and the yeah. test of reasonableness will also always have to factor in the individual differences between individuals. So yeah, it's not a simple thing. It's not a universal thing in that it's all the same, but it's universal in that it's reasonable for each individual, whatever they end up with. Yeah. And Can you, you, yeah, okay, go. Yeah. And on the other side, that's, that's the sort of lower boundary. And at the upper boundary, you've got things like thermodynamic and mass limits for the planet and thermodynamic limits for the solar system and thermodynamic limits for the Milky Way galaxy, et cetera. Um, like we can play in the solar system for the next three or 4,000 years at any realistic expansion rate for human humanity um, without bumping into limits. Um, so I think we've got, plenty of room for freedom to, for us to explore freedom and to explore responsibility. Um, part of responsibility has to be looking after 
the social and the ecological and the cultural systems that allow us to emerge in the first place. So, yeah. And by that, I'm not in any way implying that we should lock anyone into any particular culture uh, because everyone no. has, has the option of going post, post-cultural at a time and a place of their choosing. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, where I was getting at was, so when we do, uh, I'll shy away from the term socialism, but Please. when we do get to this <laughs> postmodern future of universal basic income and when people argue it, especially economists, they're like, oh, it doesn't make sense. It causes inflation. Other people will be like, it's not human nature. You know, capitalism is perfect for human nature, which is about taking care of oneself and greed. I think our definition of what a human being is needs to change fundamentally as well. That story about cooperative human beings in our history um, needs to come a lot more to the forefront as opposed to sort of social Darwinism and misinterpreted Darwinistic ideas by economists that it is survival of the fittest and like evolution isn't like everything we've talked about evolution itself isn't that simple you know we haven't even agreed upon what a species is on well, a fundamental level people are still arguing about what that actually entails so to make any huge philosophical or sociological yeah. statements about what we think a human being is the problem human, is yeah like that term survival is the fittest like yeah. i love that term that's what evolution is. But yeah. what most people misinterpret from that term is people think, oh, the fittest, that is the strongest, the, the person who can hit the hardest, um, the person who can take the most punishment. No, that's no. It's not fit in that sense. It's fit no. in the sense of a jigsaw puzzle. It's fit yeah. in the sense of this shape fits into that environment. That yeah. is survival of the fittest. So yeah. what we need to do in order to have survival for all humanity is create the environment that all of those different humanity-sized jigsaw pieces fit into. Yeah. So it's about the environment we create. What seems to be happening at the moment is people are allowing their overly simplistic notions um, taken from a, a, essentially a misunderstanding of the term fit um, to justify greed and abuse yeah. and theft, essentially, um, and to justify a form of slavery uh, when in our current context where we can make machines to do anything that we could reasonably want to do and Classes of geeks like myself just love automating shit. It's just an intellectual challenge. <laughs> but all the very best programmers I know, and I've met some of the best on the planet, um, they're not doing that stuff because they could see that the system simply doesn't work. So the very best people aren't doing that, what they're good at at the moment. Um, they're doing other shit. Yeah. What's the motivation for that? Well, they can see that there's just no future. Like all, they, all they're doing is making oligarchs even wealthier. 
and yeah. making the poorer even poorer if they go and play that game. Um, and yeah. none of them are willing to play that game. Mm. So are you talking about programmers or are you talking about the Silicon Valley elite that are doing well, this? Or I, keeping them? I haven't spent much time in Silicon Valley. I've only had something less than a week over there. So I don't know a lot of great programmers from that part of the world. But like in the 70s and 80s, I probably, and even into the 90s, I probably knew every programmer in New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. So, I've, and some of those guys went on to do some of the biggest projects on the planet. Um, so, I know some pretty smart people. And, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not what I would describe as a great programmer. Like, I, I write terrible code, but some of the guys I know, like one guy in particular, um, he'll think about a problem for days, sometimes weeks, before he writes a single line of code. And when we both produced a system to do the same job uh, over a few years. I think his was 22 kilobytes of code and mine was just on two megabytes of code. Like his solutions were so much more elegant, but yeah. maybe five or six people in the country could understand what was going on. Wow! In his, in his systems, um, pretty much anyone could follow mine because <laughs> I had just clutched things together and uh, I'd try something and oh yeah, that'll work. Most people can figure out what that's doing, so we'll put that there. And then I'll copy that and just modify it a little bit. So yeah, I, uh, I'm a copy and paste programmer. And yeah, I, I try and minimize the amount of uh, complex, like theoretically complex stuff in any coding I do. Um, yeah, just because people who haven't got much in the way of complex. Um, Understanding of complexity, um, have to use this. As yeah, the, yeah. So they've got to be. It's funny that you should say that his code was is more. You said more simplified, or I guess, but it's no, the opposite, it's, isn't it? It's no, got no, more no. layers than yeah. But yeah, his his was sublimely beautiful in the 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 layers. Yeah, the the stacks of logic. That he had used and the absolute minimal amount of code that he had used to produce the same output um yeah so in terms of now moving on from programming human beings programming to artificial systems writing code and creating these solutions that took you many weeks to do that they can potentially do in a couple of seconds is that how far are we from that reality everyone i know is studying programming like all my friends regardless of what they did during lockdown they all just started on c and c plus plus and learning how to code and i'm like in the future isn't it going to be ai writing code like i suppose yeah. we need to program ai to be able to do that is that happening at the moment look even gpt3 like, yeah. have you heard of that? Yeah. GPT-3 yeah, yeah. is a I read pretty some good articles. Yeah. GPT-3 is a pretty good coder. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So there are very, very sophisticated software systems that are already very, very good at writing software. Um, like but it writes human moment, language, though, doesn't it? GPT-3. GPT-3 can write yeah. code. Oh, can write code? I thought it just can writes write articles. Okay. It, it can do it, code as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The articles um, are rubbish. Yeah. But so far. It's like one of the things. Yeah. Like if you read the literature about um, systems development, you see that what they say is that you need to have a tight specification to do your development. Well, that's not how I've ever developed anything. Um, what I've always done is I've gone in, I've listened to what people say they want. I've looked at what they actually do. And then I've made a call as to what I think they actually need. Yeah. And then I will iteratively develop something and I will give them something and I'll say, here, this is what you wanted. And they say, oh, but it doesn't work this way. I say, no, it works slightly differently. It just does, you just do it this way and it gives you the output you want. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. Like, <laughs> it's not at all what they said they wanted. Yeah. But it is exactly what they needed. Okay. And the ability to see that because... Yeah. Most people don't actually have a very good story about what it is that they do. Like we all have a story about what it is that we do, but often the story and what we actually do aren't particularly closely related. Um, and it's yeah. always instructive to see what people actually do and then to listen to their story about it and to note the differences. And like when you're trying to make systems work for people, you need to deal with what they're actually doing. And so that's kind of been how I've made my little systems work as well as they do for the people that they work for. Yeah. But I've, I've been doing it for 36 years and I'm, they're still paying me money. So it's, <laughs> yeah, I must have been reasonably happy with it. Yeah. So in terms of AI at one point replacing or working alongside you in writing these systems, these codes, um, well, isn't, yeah. There's, I think there are, there are perhaps AIs already in existence that are much, much better coders than I will ever be. Um, but in terms of understanding, like you just said, I I get that. Like understanding the needs of someone who doesn't necessarily understand what they need themselves. Yeah, that intuition you can't program AI to respond like that. Well, it's the it's the recursive levels that you build into the AI systems, um, like. <laughs> how to like this is a really difficult subject it's a really really complex subject um, like most people when they think about programming they think about well you write a, a series of instructions and the computer follows them well yeah kind of yes that, 
that is in fact what we do. But when you start to talk about coding things like artificial neural networks, then what you're coding is the rules for the structure of the network, but you've got no idea when you code it how that network's actually going to configure itself or what it's actually going to do. Like you've got your fingers crossed, you hope, um, and when you try things out, you can see like you get a gradient descent model and um, providing that the information you're feeding this network is actually categorized in a way that is actually reasonably strongly correlated with reality, then you can get those neural nets to do amazing stuff much faster and more reliably than humans do. Um, but you've got to do the categorization. And so when you get to artificial systems where you're allowing the neural nets or some aspect of the neural nets to redefine their own gradients, to do their own classification and to modulate their own valence systems, like their own reasons for being, their own preferences. Um, that's really, really complex territory. Yeah. It's people, well, there's a large number of groups in the world trying to find ways that you can prove such things to be safe. But I'm certain in my own mind that there is no way to make such things safe. It's just not even theoretically possible. Um, yeah. We're actually dealing with open systems. We're actually dealing with unexplored strategic and computational territory. And we just don't know what's out there. Um, yeah. Like there will be dragons, you know, like the ancient maps of the world. There be dragons sort of beyond yeah. the known space. Yeah. yeah, there's dragons out there. Like there were, in fact, kraken. Like there were, in fact, giant squid. Yeah. There were, in fact, big sharks. And there were, in fact, big whales. So there actually were dragons of sorts out there. Like we've tamed them now. Um, they're not, yeah. They're not such a problem to us. But um, in the computation and strategic worlds, there, there are dragons out there. We've known about holding problems forever. So uh, human brains have many, many, many different mechanisms, and some of them quite basic physiological ones that um, solve for holding problems. You, know, you can only go so many hours contemplating a particularly abstract thought before you actually go unconscious and stop contemplating it. <laughs> Yeah. About 26 hours is as far as I've pushed it. Wow. With your fudge. Yeah, no. Back then. Recently? No. No, I haven't, I haven't pushed to that level for some time. And so in terms of reper um, repercussions for humanity, um, is if these self-aware neural networks start 
creating dragons. Like no, I was just yeah. thinking about genetics and how we've got, you know, there's certain safety parameters within DNA replication and various enzymes are responsible for splicing out and finding out what works, what doesn't. I mean, ultimately it's random and luck, but there are these safety mechanisms in place. Uh, could we oh. have something similar in this world that created by humans that make sure that this doesn't go beyond certain yeah Isn't now it... I'm seeing the complexity that, um, you look at yeah. just what does happen within humans yeah okay so where are those sorting mechanisms okay within a human within like we've got these cell lines okay germ yeah. lines and so within the female's ovaries, the, the egg has to, it does its final division and then it sets off down a fallopian tube and it has to survive in that environment. So there's a lot of selection going on there. With the male sperm, the selection pressure is huge. There are millions yeah. of sperm that uh fighting to get there like they they have to be sufficiently energetic that they can make it to the egg and then they have to be sufficiently energetic that they can be the first one to get into that egg so yeah. there's a huge strong selection pressure there for the basic physiology energetics the phys basic physiology of of energy consumption and energy production so that's a huge selection pressure so it's like a million to one yeah. selection pressure or millions to one like less than one in ten to the six gets selected um, and then there's the gestation period so long before the fetus gets to be born like probably I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but probably way more than half of the fetuses never, even though there's already been that selection pressure on the egg and on the sperms. Yeah. The fetus develops, most of them are bought. Um, yeah. They don't make it for any of a vast number of, like, there's that massive amount of selection happens before the baby even is born. And then that baby gets born, and then we find that there's, all these distributions of all these characteristics. So people will be somewhere on an IQ spectrum. They'll be somewhere on a physical, on various physical spectra. They'll be on various emotional spectra. And there's all of this vast amounts of randomness that are there, all of these different attributes that can come together. And it's just mind-bogglingly complex. Yeah, uh, and we end up being the individuals we are, and yeah, you know, a fair chunk of it is genetic, a fair chunk of it's cultural, and a fair chunk of it's up to our own individual choices. And as much as we make such things, um, so yeah, we're the selection that, that happens is vast. And most of it's very low level, and yeah, it's it's present and necessary 
Um, it's once you get someone to the stage of being a language and self-aware consciousness, uh, it's very hard to do selection from that point on. Um, you can put limits around, you know, based on limits of responsibility. But I would not advocate going back to the old ways of some judge somewhere sitting and saying, nah, off of the head. Yeah. I don't think that's a viable solution ever. Once you get to the point of languaging, then you have to have some degree of freedom. Like, you may not have a lot of responsibility, so you may not get a lot of freedom, but you have to get some. Yeah. You have to have some security. And so it's, it's a hard problem. Yeah. And it's deeply, deeply, deeply dimensional. And like in that sense, reform of our existing systems, it's not simple. Like those existing systems are in fact deeply complex and they are in fact good enough that we are in fact alive and having this discussion right now. So they're not all bad. In fact, they're amazingly bloody good to have yeah. got us this far. And the, well, there's an interesting thing that um, Dave Snowden talks about uh, in his time at IBM. Like when he analyzed, like Snowden's a complexity theorist. And when he was working at IBM, one of the things that interested him was the communication systems within IBM. And he did an analysis on those systems and decided that yeah, IBM should have failed as a company. These systems can't possibly work. And then he looked at what was actually happening. And what he found was that people had set up informal communications networks because most of the people working at IBM actually liked doing what they were doing. So they found ways to get around the official rules in order to yeah. keep the business alive. And Amazing. I think that's pretty much what's happening with the planet right now. There are sufficient, there's a sufficient number of people who like living, who like technology, who like reasonable degrees of freedom, who accept that that demands of them responsibility, and they're getting on with doing what they can see needs to be done, and to hell with the systems. Um, whereas I've sort of bitten off the bit that says, well, actually, yeah, that's really good, and we need to keep doing that, but actually we do, in fact, need to change the systems as well. And um, we need to start thinking about that really deeply, really soon, because we can't go on with this particular clutch for much longer. Yeah. Are you aware of, um, you know, Yanis Varoufakis, the ex-Greek finance minister, and Bernie Sanders, they've set up some world political socialist, I think. And they're pairing together with the Soros Foundation. Like I'm saying, like in what sense, you know, it has to be grassroots efforts like that that bring this into the mainstream discussion. Like Andrew Yang talking about universal basic income on a presidential platform. Um, 
you yeah. know, to make these these stories take hold in the human narrative. Um, well, I think I'll, yeah, I'm trying to think how many years ago it is now. Is it eight? Might be eight years ago, might be 11 years ago that I did when I was standing as a candidate for Kaikoura. Yeah. An interview with Kim Hill about universal basic income and its necessity. But, you know, those conversations have been around for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. How, what was her response to that? Well, it was, uh, this, these are not exactly word for word, but the, the general theme was when I thought I was going to have this conversation, I thought I was going to be talking to a complete nutcase, but she said, you're not a complete nutcase, are you? Said, <laughs> Amazing. No, I'm not. Was uh, this after you'd said, already been voted in or when you were going for... No, no I've, I've never been elected to parliament. Oh, I thought you, but you were a district something. You were a representative. Oh, I've been, yeah, I, I've been on district council, and I may yet yeah. be on the district council again. And like I've been involved in local body politics, but I've I've stood for parliament. I think five times. Yeah, and the first time was back in '84, and that was in Tarana, and Winston Peters was which was when Winston first stood in Tarana, and I was the Labor candidate. And he was national. And what? I did not know that. And that did was, he win? Or... Yeah, yeah, he won. He was about 3,000 votes ahead of me. Um, oh, that's not that much. Um, but that was a really interesting exercise. And, like, I got to know Winston really quite well because we'd see yeah. each other a couple of three times a day. And he's the most likable rogue I've ever met. Yes, um, I have heard that about him. He's like, If he had a moral compass, he would be a superb, or if you'd be able to read his moral compass i think it's there it's just you get sidelined yeah i think the media and the all of that changes people a little bit as well yeah like politics is always complex and it was funny because like i I knew philip vella because i've been involved in fishing and philip was involved in fishing and I worked yeah. on computer systems for him for a bit. So I actually got to spend a bit of time talking to Philip about this subject and others. And it, I didn't spend a lot of time in Wellington, but it seemed like every other time I'd be in Wellington, I would see Winston and Philip in some little cafe somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I just Quantum knew entanglement. I just knew them both. Just. Yeah, you know, by completely separate means, but I, I knew that like Philip was basically funding Winston's um, yeah his electoral campaign, campaign. Yeah. and he pretty much did. And Winston looked after Philip and the horse racing industry quite well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just such a small world, and it is well, and New Zealand as well. Yeah, so. Would you ever do that again? Um, yeah, I may, but... Um, How old are you now, Ted? 66, 67 shortly. Oh, man, it's young for a politician. Well, yeah, but <laughs> oh, I was much, much younger when I first started. Yeah. I was 29 when I first started. And who did you have as a benefactor? Um, just me. Just you, so you didn't have some. Yeah. Well, I had been 
it's kind of it's kind of funny. Like I got involved in Labour Party because while I could see that Muldoon was really bright, some of the things he was doing, I could just see were catastrophic for the long-term future of New Zealand. And I, at all costs, we had to get rid of him. I had to get him out yeah. of power. And yeah, then he went and pulled that bloody trick of in June uh, 84 announcing that there would be the snap election on July the 14th. So I'd teed myself up for a, a campaign in October and November, and then suddenly I was thrown into one in June oh, July. And so I remember him calling it for July the 14th because he called it for my birthday. <laughs> so I went, I was on a six week full time uh, electioneering campaign. So I, I was six weeks just every waking hour knocking on doors or talking to groups. And yeah. it was a, for me, a fascinating process. I, I learned so much about myself, um, about so many different things. Um, at some points, I found myself in a feedback with crowds that had me saying things that I would never have said just by myself. Um, so I found the degree to which I was swayed by crowds to be quite scary. And yeah. so I, I sort of stepped back from politics for a few years until I had learned how to modulate that to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that was a dangerous one. But I yeah, think that I, happens to most politicians, Ted. It happens they, to everybody, they, not just yeah. politicians. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah exactly. But, the, but becoming aware of it and like with awareness, you can gain responsibility. Um, yeah. So yeah, I had to put myself in that situation to find out how much I needed to learn. Um, but wow. yeah, so but I, I met some amazing people in the process, and uh, yeah, it was kind of funny because I'd been involved in the primary producer council of the Labour Party for some years before that. Yeah. And I'd got to know this guy, this farmer from up at Newhaka, Dave, and Dave and I would get along really well. I, I didn't even know his surname. Anyway, this I used to drive <laughs> down from from home, from Waitakaruru, uh, down to Wellington. Like I'd leave home at two in the morning, drive down to Wellington. We'd spend all day in Parliament, and usually it'd finish at five o'clock, and I could get back in the car and drive back home, and I'd get home at sort of one or two in the morning and catch a couple of hours sleep and get back to work the next day. So it would only cost me one day away from productive work. Um, but sometimes it would run on into the evening. And then it would get too late. Like, like this one particular night, it ran on till about eight o'clock. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm too tired. I'm not going to be able to drive back to, to yeah. Waitakere. Um, and they said, oh, why don't you come and um, stay at my brother's place? He's got plenty of room. And he's, he said, Richard won't mind. I'll give him a bell. And, okay. So we showed up and I found out Dave's surname. Yeah, it was Douglas, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we rocked up to Richard's place and we ended up talking about finance and the future of humanity until about 4 a.m. over a couple of bottles of scotch. So, um, so nice. I got to know. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, Roger. So, I got to know Roger Douglas really well and I got to know Richard Preble really well. And both guys yeah. ended up becoming you know, quite good friends. And both 
superbly intelligent and not at all what you'd expect from the picture that's painted in the newspapers or on TV. Yeah. Like both guys just so different from that when you had them one on one. And Roger was just brilliant in front of a small crowd up to about 30 people. Yeah. Absolutely amazing guy. And uh, yeah, but yeah, just meet some. If you're prepared to get out there and push your limits, you meet some interesting people. And I've yeah. been fortunate in that. Yeah. Do you have a newfound respect for politicians just based purely on that experience? Politicians that can still keep their wits about them. I noticed it in Andrew Yang as well. It's, it's happened to him as well. Like the more popular he got, the more people turned up at his rallies, he changed when he was talking. And so I think that's something that a lot of politicians experience. Well, like you say, people experience, but they're not necessarily honest about it. It just feels right for them. Yeah. To address the. Well, we have to. There has to be an aspect of that. You know, so if we didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to. We wouldn't have any connection with the crowd. Uh, yeah. So you have to be able to connect and interact, but you have to be able to also be alert to the dangers of it. And yeah there's many levels of dangers and like one of the one of the guys I met in politics he was just so committed like a Labour Party politician he put himself in a wheelchair with the stress that he took on oh, trying man. to solve all of the problems for all of his constituents that came through his door uh, and he was just such a nice guy but yeah, it's like even in this town, when I, the last time I campaigned to be on the council here, um, knocking on doors and talking to people, and even in this tiny community of 4,000 people, there are a lot of people who have got serious issues and just trying to sort their issues out. But yeah. There's, there's no simple answer in the current system. So no, I you, see what you mean. You scale that up to the size of New Zealand and you scale it up to the size of the planet. Like, you have to retain compassion but not be destroyed by your compassion. Um, so, you, yeah. yeah, you have to sort of harden up to a degree but without becoming too hard. And it, Yeah, you know, that's the problem. Yeah, finding that balance as to, yeah, it's not easy. And I, no. have, I have a great deal of respect for any, for most of the politicians that are in parliament. Um, yeah. When I was really active, I knew most of them on both sides of the house on a first name basis. And I could have arguments with just about any of them, but I could also <laughs> respect them. Um, yeah. And I could right. see that they were there for you know, the right general class. They were doing what they believed, which was genuinely of benefit to their constituency or, or to the nation. Yeah. Even though I might have disagreed with with what they, the specifics of what they thought, I couldn't disagree with their motivation. I had to give them full marks for the motivation. Yeah. And, and yeah, so that's one of the fundamental problems. Yeah. I think this is great. We've dissected it from all angles. 
That's probably, and I think we're going to have to have another conversation at some point, Ted. But I want to thank you. We're at the two-hour mark now. I was going to ask, have you been to Wellington yet, or is that coming up? No, that's uh, not till May. Yeah. Ah, you still got time till May. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll see if we can plan one closer to that time before you're going, if you've got time. I'll let you know. We'll be in communication. Okay. Um, Cheers, much love to Elsa, and say thanks for her I'll pass sacrificing you to us. Awesome. <laughs> We talk soon, Ted. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Kapai, everyone, and thanks for listening. I know it was another long one, but I'm pretty sure those of you who stuck towards the end um, were highly entertained. Yeah, so to repeat, the only person who never made any mistakes never made anything. Um, yeah, wanted to say thank you once again to Ted for coming on the podcast. And I'm sure that we'll have you on again soon. Uh, coming up on Friday, I'm interviewing Renee Jane, who runs an organizational consultancy. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Still have the interview with Dr. Andrea Triton coming up and a couple of other super interesting guests that I've lined up over the next month. So thank you so much for supporting Tekupu and have a lovely rest of your week and talk soon. Maoyora, everyone. <laughs>